Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll learn about the burn unit at Upstate University Hospital. If you have a burn that is in a specialized area such as your hands or your feet and there's blisters that are open and weeping, you're probably going to want to get it looked at. Then we'll discuss the difference between physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Uh, so it's the difference between being at liberty to do something and having a right that requires other people's assistance. And we'll talk about how to address the health issues that are common among workers with low-wage jobs. We're learning about what kind of exposures or problems that arise in the workplace that threaten health. So for a hairstylist, for example, she may be exposed to a number of chemicals in her workplace. We'll have all that and a visit from our Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health medicine and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a psychiatrist will discuss physician-assisted suicide and how it differs from euthanasia. Then, an occupational health researcher will explain the health issues that are common among workers with low-wage jobs. But first, a nurse from Upstate University Hospital's Clark Burn Center will talk about the medical care provided in the specialized unit. The Clark Burn Center is a six-bed intensive care unit at Upstate that serves more than 40 counties surrounding Syracuse. The burn team cares for both adults and children and last year treated 308 patients. Tamara Roberts is the burn program manager, and she's here with me today to talk about caring for patients who have been burned. Welcome, Tamara. Thank you. So tell me about um, some of the types of patients that you see on the burn unit. Well, we, over the years, um, every year there's about 486,000 people who are burned. And that's nationally. And that's nationally. And then of those, there's about 40,000 that are hospitalized. So serious enough that they need med- hospitalization. Yes. Um, and what we typically see are uh, flame injuries, scald burns, mm-hmm. contact burns, uh, like touching a stove, or maybe they've fallen into a fire and they use their hands to push back up. And touching a stove burn could end up being severe enough to need hospitalization? Yes, because especially with your young children and your older adults, they have much thinner tissue, so they end up with more severe burns that end up being second and third degree that may need grafting. So um, those end up being the much more severe cases. We also see electrical burns, we get uh, chemical burns, we also um, see frostbite in the wintertime. That's um, just like a burn? Yeah, it's just like a burn, and we treat them much the same as a burn. And then there's also uh, medications that can cause what we call Steven Johnson syndrome, which is where your skin reacts to the medication, and it really replicates a burn. So they're treated in the burn center as well, and it can progress to what we call TENS, which is it involves the whole entire body. 
Wow. So uh, it, some of these burns are severe in, in the recovery. I mean, people are in the hospital for a long time. For... Yeah, they can be in the hospital anywhere from a couple days to a few months. But with burns, they're the most painful injuries that a human body can um, have happened to them. And it's a lifelong thing that a person has to go through. It's both uh, physically and emotionally uh, traumatizing to the survivors who have endured a burn injury. It's not something that you can just fix and it goes away. There's things that have to happen throughout their life and it continues throughout. Wow. Well, let me back you up. You said the most like physically painful. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because your skin is what protects your body. And when you damage the skin, you're affecting all of those nerves. And when you affect those nerves, it is extremely painful. And the larger the burn area, the more painful it is. And it's, it sets off an inflammatory response in the body, which also progresses the pain wow. for these patients. Um, are these patients able to take pain medicine or is there topical? I mean, how do you treat the pain? Well, with the pain, it, it's going to vary with the patients. A lot of times we use IV pain medications, but there's a lot of um, other things that go along with it. And sometimes we have to involve our um, pain team as well so that the pain is managed properly. We can't always take away all of the pain, but our goal is to make them as comfortable as possible. Okay. Well, tell me about some of the treatment that takes place in the hospital for a burn patient. When the patients first come in, we have to clean the areas to see and assess what the damage is. And it typically takes 24 to 48 hours for a burn to really show us how deep it is going to really? be. Because the cells continue to die even after we've stopped that burning process. So we will do daily cleanings with these patients to the burned areas. And what's a cleaning and like? Cleanings are going to depend on... Um, the patient's wounds, sometimes we use uh, bedside cleansing with special chlorohexidine soaps and soft soaps, and sometimes we were using hydrotherapy, and we're in the process of building a new shower room right now that will um, we'll be able to take them into the room and give them uh, showers right on a nice table and provide dressings right there for them. Okay, so you, hydrotherapy using water to, yes. in the clinic? Okay. and to clean it, yep. Okay. All right, and that happens daily? Daily. More? Okay. Yep, until they go to surgery. If they have to have surgery, once they go to surgery and they have those wounds debrided, which is where we take off all that dead tissue, then it'll be three to five days from that point. We'll assess the areas and the graphs and see at that point what type of treatment they need from there, if they're going to need some autografting, which is taking their own skin and applying it to those burned areas. So they would find skin in a place elsewhere on the body that they could transplant to the burned area? To the burned area, yes. Okay. But you have to have a, a healthy spot where the burned area is before you can put that skin on. And sometimes that takes a couple of weeks before we can get that burned area viable enough to put wow. their own skin on. So sometimes we have to put on what we call xenograft, which is um, pig skin. And we put that on there to, to be a protectant 
for is that it like, area. Uh, temporary? Yes, it's okay. very temporary. It's removed uh, when they go back to surgery, and then their own skin is applied to that area. So depending on the, the type of burn, a patient might undergo multiple surgeries? Unfortunately, yes. If they have larger surface areas that are burned, then they may have multiple surgeries. And then even after they've been discharged, sometimes they have to come back and have uh, releases of contractures and um, some reconstructive surgeries. We just recently received a laser that was purchased and that is offered as an outpatient service. And that can be done um, under general or local anesthesia. And that allows um, some softening of the scar tissue. It reduces itching that we get with the scar tissue. It releases contractures. And it's actually allowed for some people that weren't allowed, able to sleep on one side to be able to sleep on their other sides now. Huh. And it's uh, very beneficial to them, and it's done over six-week intervals, and it's done until they reach the desired uh, stage that they want to be at. Well, you mentioned that it's a lifelong issue to deal with once you've survived burns. Yeah, because um, once they're discharged from the hospital, they will go through rehabilitation, occupational and physical therapy. They have to follow up in clinic. They have to wear pressure garments so that they don't get buildup of keloids in their skin. And the garments are typically worn for about a year. And you can't go directly out in the sun because your skin is so oh. sensitive. And it's also traumatic for some people. So they may experience PTSD and are unable to sleep. And they may be scarred. And they have difficult times dealing with that. So that's why we offer a support group at the Oasis. It's once a month, the first Thursday of the month from 5 to 7. Survivors and their family members can come. And it's just a time where they can get together and talk about the different things that they're going through and how they've dealt with it and learn different ways to deal and cope with things. And um, it's, it's just really good that they're able to communicate with somebody that's gone through that and experienced what they've gone through. And it's, it's very beneficial to them. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Tamara Roberts, a nurse who's the program manager in the Clark Burn Center at Upstate. And you mentioned the Burn Survivor Support Group. I wanted to talk about some of that and some other activities that the Burn team is involved in outside of the hospital care that's provided. So the support group... Um, You've also got a camp for children that have been burnt? Um, there is a camp that's offered once a year. It's up in Lowellville that um, the CNY Burn, or the Found, Burn Foundation of Central New York has um, offered to send victims, or excuse me, survivors of burns to. And it's a time when children can get together and be who they are, and be around other people that have gone through what they have gone through. And our foundation here at Upstate works with their foundation, and we get the children together, and they are able to go up to that camp once a year. Neat, neat. Now, um, you've also mentioned there's a training program that you're involved in? We are starting to do a peer support program, which is where we will be um, getting survivors and family members 
trained professionally so that they can offer support to inpatient. While they're in the hospital? Yes. So they can learn? Okay. Yeah, it'll provide support while they're in the hospital. Because a lot of times the nurses are so busy with the care that's got to be provided. And and they don't have all that time to provide that emotional and physical and social support that's needed. So those survivors will be able to come in and, and provide that support to those people. I can imagine if you're a family member or a friend of someone who's been burned, you wouldn't necessarily know what to do to help them, you know, what would be helpful. So Yeah, it's it's very often that they don't know how to respond. They don't know what to say. They don't know what's going to be happening in the future. So they have lots of questions and uh, just looking for resources and, and what to do. Okay. Now, um, there's also some training going on at Fort Drum? Yes, we offer uh, training at Fort Drum four times a year. It's our Advanced Burn Life Support class, and that's where uh, myself and Dr. Dolanak, who is our medical director, Dr. King, and a few of the others are going up there, and we provide Advanced Burn Life Support education to the soldiers Hmm. so that if they're out in the field, they're able to provide They'll that. They'll know what to do. Yeah. Neat. Well, that's advanced burn life support. I was going to ask you for your um, advice for what people can do if, if they sustain a burn in their home. or If they get burned in their home, the first thing you want to do is stop the burn. You want to use cool water, and you want to do that immediately. Now, is that for any type of burn? For pretty much any type okay. of burn, you want to use cool water just to stop that burn. You don't want to use ice or ice-cold water because that actually will um, cause a more severe burn, just cool or, or Do you want it to water. be um, moving water, like from a faucet, or water like in a tub? You would, you would prefer moving water, but you're going to do what Take you can what you find. have, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. anything you can find to cool it down. But an ice chest would be more damaging than it would be? Yes, because that would actually um, progress the burn and make it more severe. Your first instinct is to put ice on it to stop that burning, but it actually will progress a burn. And I've heard uh, old wives' tales, maybe. Um, Butter? Yeah, butter is is long gone. That was an old wives' tale that the grandmothers used to put butter on the burns and it would make it better. Um, It doesn't, doesn't work. Well, how do you know if a burn needs to be um, seen by a medical professional? If you have a burn that is in a specialized area such as your hands or your feet and it's really dark red and it's very painful and there's blisters that are open and weeping, you're probably going to want to get it looked at. Okay. If there's any kind of infection looking area... Or if you have a burn and it looks white, because that's actually a very deep third-degree burn that you're going to want to get looked at. Wow, no matter how small an area that would yeah. be if it's white. Okay. And they may just have you follow up in our clinic, but it's better to have it looked at than to not. Okay. What about um, sunburns? Do you ever see sunburns that are so severe that they have to be treated? I've had a couple of people who have come in with sunburns. Sunburns are typically like a first-degree burn, and those are just going to heal on their own and go away. Some, it may be painful. And it may, may be painful, okay. but it, it'll, it will heal and be fine. 
But I've seen where people have been on medications and they fell asleep in the sun and they come out and they're purple and they have their skin just slough off from it. So you want to be really careful. Make sure you're wearing your sunscreen when you're out and also wear sunglasses because you can also burn your eyes eyes. and cause damage. Well, we hear about, um, you know, the house fires and the people injured in house fires and things. Those make headlines. Are there other types of burns that you commonly see that maybe don't make the headlines? Smoking and oxygen. Smoking with an oxygen tank? Yes. You should never light a cigarette near an oxygen tank. And we get multiple patients who are smoking on oxygen because when you light a lighter, it ignites the oxygen and it's the gases that cause an explosion. Wow. So you really just don't, if you have oxygen in the house, do not want to be uh, smoking. Okay. Well, good advice. My guest has been Burn Program Manager Tamara Roberts. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next... Do Americans have a right to physician-assisted suicide? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Here to discuss the current status of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia in the United States and other countries is Dr. Ronald Pies, a professor of psychiatry and a lecturer on bioethics and humanities at Upstate. He's also a clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine and the editor-in-chief emeritus of the journal Psychiatric Times. Welcome, Dr. Pies. Thanks very much, Amber. So let's start by explaining what is physician-assisted suicide and how does it differ from euthanasia? Sure. And uh, before I forget, I'd like to thank my colleague, Dr. Mark Comrade, for uh, helping with uh, the background material that I'll be referring to. Okay. So basically, um, physician-assisted suicide refers to uh, the uh, prescribing of a uh, lethal Uh, medication for a patient who uh, wishes to end his or her life. Uh, The patient takes the lethal medication um, pretty much when he or she uh, decides to do that. Uh, And that differs from euthanasia, which is sometimes called uh, mercy killing, Uh, in that with euthanasia, the physician or someone uh, actually uh, administers, um, usually by lethal injection, uh, the drug that uh, ends up taking the person's life. Okay, so it has to do with the um, uh, ability of the person to make a decision that they want to die versus someone else making the decision that they want that person to die. Well, in both cases, the, the person uh, may wish to end his or her life. Um, the, the difference is really that in one case, uh, the person uh, himself uh, takes 
the lethal medication. Um, and uh, no one may even be present at that time. Um, in contrast with euthanasia, someone is actually uh, sort of pushing the plunger, so to speak. Okay. Uh, so it's a difference between lethal prescription and lethal injection, if you want to look at it that way. Okay. Now, um, the term assisted dying, is that different? Right. Um, here we get into some difficult uh, linguistic uh, battles because the terms that we apply uh, have a lot to do with the values that we want to advocate. So, for example, people who generally favor what I would call physician-assisted suicide uh, will often refer to it as assisted dying or medical assistance in dying. Uh, and so it becomes kind of a political battleground, unfortunately. Uh, I do not like the term assisted dying uh, or medically assisted dying. I think it's misleading uh, because when a person ingests a lethal uh, medication, um, you're not assisting dying. You're terminating dying by inducing death. And so from my standpoint, the term assisted dying or medically assisted dying is a bit of a euphemism. And I, I think it, it really disguises some of the ethical issues that physicians uh, face. Okay. Well, let's talk about the current status of physician-assisted sure. suicide and euthanasia in the, U, in the U.S. Sure. Um, how many states allow? Uh, by my latest count, it's seven states or districts uh, in one form or another um, um, allow for what I would call PAS, physician-assisted suicide, uh, Oregon, Washington State, uh, Montana, though it's more complicated there, uh, Vermont, California, Colorado, and uh, the District of Columbia. Um, but uh, current laws are being considered in 16 other states. Um, so this is something that has grown in recent years. Um, interestingly, North Dakota, uh, their legislature actually came out with a joint resolution saying that PAS, uh, physician-assisted suicide, is not ethical and not good public policy. And so that was really unique among all the states. Huh. So they've, is there a, like a law saying that they're not going to have it, or they just come out strongly in, against? Uh, it's a joint resolution of its uh, legislature oh. saying uh, that they will not uh, permit any legislation to legalize uh, PAS Interesting. in North Dakota, yes. Well, how, does, uh, how do things compare with Canada and Europe? In that uh, the short answer is things are looser in Canada and uh, in Europe. Uh, in Canada, they have something called uh, C-14. It's a federal law that allows what they call medical aid in dying. And there again, you have what to me is a bit of a, a euphemism. Um, in contrast to the United States, where uh, basically um, PAS is applied only to terminally ill uh, patients, uh, in Canada, uh, they have a looser uh, category. They uh, say that the person must uh, have an insufferable and untreatable condition, but uh, that is considerably looser than saying the person is terminally ill. Mm. Uh, they also require in Canada that death is, quote, foreseeable, and again, um, there's a lot of latitude in that. Um, in Europe, things are even looser. Um, 
basically uh, euthanasia by lethal injection is legal, uh, even for non-terminal patients, even for patients with psychiatric disorders. Uh, I'm talking now about the um, Benelux countries, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. Um, and there are many reports uh, in Europe of patients with what I would call treatable psychiatric disorders uh, being uh, essentially killed, killed, sometimes huh. by their own physicians, which I personally find very, very troubling. I bet that's a big controversy in your field. It is a huge controversy, uh, and the American Psychiatric Association came out with a resolution uh, basically uh, saying that um, psychiatrists are prohibited ever from uh, prescribing um, a lethal medication for someone with a essentially a non-terminal or a treatable psychiatric illness. Um, and that was a pretty strong position on the part of the APA. Well, psychiatrists are physicians who take an oath to first do no harm, right? Well, that's right. And the Hippocratic Oath is even more uh, specific. Um, and the, the, the quote from the Hippocratic Oath uh, is, um, I the physician, will neither give a deadly drug to anybody if asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Um, seems pretty clear to me. And um, the Hippocratic physicians really differed from other physicians of their time who sometimes would assist in killing their patients. So Hippocrates was a bit of a, um, a, bit of a rebel, in a sense, in his time. Well, this is um, HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with psychiatrist Dr. Ronald Pies on the subject of physician-assisted suicide. Um, are there other major ethical considerations regarding physician-assisted suicide in addition to the Hippocratic Oath? Well, yes. Um, there are a lot of concerns about proper screening of uh, patients. Uh, for example, uh, in the United States, uh, there's no requirement for any psychiatric assessment uh, or treatment of the patient. Um, in the United States, um, a second opinion is required, but if the second opinion denies uh, the patient's uh, wish, the patient can, so to speak, keep shopping around for uh, a second opinion. Um, and uh, this is troubling uh, to, to many of us. Uh, there's also no medical supervision uh, once the lethal uh, drug is dispensed. So, uh, there's no oversight um, of whether the patient is being coerced to take it. Maybe people in the house are putting pressure on him or her to take it. Um, and there's no protection for anybody who might happen to find this lethal drug in the house and, and use it. So uh, these are all uh, ethical concerns for us. So in the U.S. right now, are people who are not terminally ill, say someone with a psychiatric disorder, right. are they eligible for physician-assisted suicide in the U.S.? Uh, no, is the okay. short answer, uh, Amber. Um, in the U.S., uh, basically, uh, PAS, physician-assisted suicide, is really for people uh, who have been diagnosed as terminally ill. Uh, so people with end-stage uh, cancer, for example, would be eligible um, People with psychiatric disorders per se are not uh, eligible in, in the United States, uh, though there have been arguments um, by various groups uh, saying uh, that uh, we should not, quote, discriminate, unquote, against uh, people with mental illnesses by excluding them, which seems to me a very odd uh, sort of use of uh, equal protection. 
Interesting. What are uh, some of the reasons that people give for requesting physician-assisted suicide? Right. Good question, uh, Amber. One of the misconceptions is that uh, people are in uh, the last stages of their disease. They're in horrible pain. They're suffering terribly, and they, they, they just want uh, an end to their misery. Uh, actually, that's not true. Um, most of the people uh, who have been studied in Oregon and Washington, the states with the most experience so far, uh, most of those people are not in severe pain. Um, instead, they are afraid of becoming dependent. Uh, they're afraid that um, they will lose their dignity. They are uh, anxious about dying. These are all issues that mental health professionals could be very helpful with. Um, and so it's not a matter of, uh, for the most part, treating terrible, intractable pain or suffering. Wow. So it's something else. It's really um, anxiety. Uh, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be a burden on my family? Um, am I going to die alone? Am I going to be lonely at the end? And these are all issues that can be addressed uh, by talking with the patient. Uh, and um, my own view and the view of many of my colleagues is that um, killing, helping to kill the patient is not the way to deal with those kinds of anxieties. Do, do you believe that people have a right to physician-assisted suicide, and does that differ from the right to decline treatment yeah, in their that, last Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do not believe that people have a right to uh, physician-assisted suicide, and uh, that has never been upheld as a right by, for example, the United States Supreme Court. Um, there's an important distinction to be made here, and I'll just make it briefly. Um, between liberties and rights. Um, I believe, and, and the courts have supported, uh, first of all, uh, that uh, people have a right to decline uh, unwanted treatment if they are mentally competent. So no one who is mentally competent is obligated to uh, have medical treatment that they do not wish, particularly when they're terminally ill. So that is, that is a, a, a right. Um, but the right to suicide or assisted suicide has never been uh, upheld. People who are competent, uh, mentally competent, may be at liberty to take their lives, meaning that um, we do not interfere with their decision if they're mentally competent. Uh, but a right is something that confers duties on other people. And we do not believe, my colleagues and I do not believe, that there is a right to have somebody else help kill you. Uh, so it's the difference between being at liberty to do something and having a right that requires other people's assistance. That's an important distinction. So how does the issue of palliative care um, and terminal sedation enter into the debate? Well, uh, palliative care is really the use of uh, pain-relieving medication for people who are in the end uh, of days, in the last stages of a terminal illness. And um, palliative care is aimed really at comfort. Um, it is not aimed at prolonging the dying process. Uh, it is aimed at helping the person deal with uh, pain that they may be experiencing at the end of days. Uh, palliative sedation is a, a, a more aggressive use of uh, medication to basically decrease the person's level of consciousness, not to end their life, but to decrease their level of consciousness to the point where they 
we believe, are not experiencing uh, the pain. And that is um, usually considered a last resort uh, in hospice uh, settings. But these are alternatives, certainly, to uh, giving people medications to take that will kill them. Sure. What, what about the ethics of um, someone who voluntarily stops eating and drinking as a mean right, to that, end their life? That's a great question, too. VSED, voluntary stopping of eating and drinking, uh, has long been recognized in many spiritual traditions as a, a dignified way of ending one's life, uh, usually in the context of some serious uh, terminal illness. Um, in the Jain uh, religion, for example, this has been recognized for centuries. Um, contrary to a, a very um, popular myth, um, voluntary stopping of eating and drinking is not a, a horrible uh, process of starving oneself because as one is dying, the body naturally decreases its need for food and most people who are in the final stages of dying uh, refuse food anyway. Uh, so refusal of food and drink is uh, an alternative, and I think an ethically justifiable alternative to physician-assisted suicide, and voluntary stopping of eating and drinking is recognized by uh, most hospice organizations as a dignified and ethical way of uh, ending one's life. And physically, someone may not be able to eat or drink in the end of life. Uh, that's that's so. true. Uh, one good thing about VSED is that the patient can change his mind uh, and at some point say, you know what, um, I think I'm um, going to eat <laughs> or drink. Uh, whereas when you administer a lethal drug, uh, most cases it's going to be over for that person. There's no going back. Very interesting. My guest has been Dr. Ronald Pies, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, the health issues that low-wage workers deal with on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Low-wage jobs carry more occupational health and safety risks for workers than higher-paying jobs. Jeanette Zeckler, Director of Research and Special Projects for the Occupational Health Clinical Centers at Upstate, has been involved in the low-wage workers' health project since 2013. It's a project with multiple phases that has 559 participating low-wage workers. Jeanette is here to talk about her findings. Welcome, Jeanette. Hello. Thanks for being here. Last time you were here, um, you told us that from 30 to 38% of low-wage workers have pain that they believe is connected to their jobs, mostly musculoskeletal problems, aching feet, uh, backs, knees, headaches, and that most of these workers don't complain because they don't want to risk losing their jobs. Does this continue to be a problem today? Yes, we continue to find uh, similar levels of, of symptoms that people connect to their work. We really do. So what types of um, jobs 
are we connecting these two? Every, every sector in our economy has low-wage jobs that are either entry-level or just lower-skilled, de-skilled jobs. So we're talking about the people who do the very basics in each field, the cleaners, the clerical workers, the uh, restaurant workers. We'll speak with uh, home health aides, healthcare workers at you know very basic levels, those sorts of workers that are doing uh, retail also, retail cashiers. They're doing the most basic level work in our society. Okay, and that's across industries. Mm-hmm. Let's remind um, listeners what low wage means. What we use is the living wage concept where it, we consider people to be working with low wages when they can't make a living um, without government help. And in Onondaga County, that's usually between 14 and $15 an hour okay. as just a basic benchmark. And in terms of the characteristics of low-wage workers, we're not talking about um, kids with summer jobs. Right. A lot of these jobs used to be you know, taken up by people who just needed a little bit of extra discretionary income to supplement their families. But what we're finding now is that people across the age lifespan are using these jobs as a way to make a living or an attempt to make a living. And many of these jobs just aren't suited um, for that purpose, really. They have sort of no pathway or little opportunity for pathways. Okay. So tell me about the project methods that you've used in, in this. I think what um, drives me sometimes are the central features of our project methods, which revolve around making dialogues with with adult working people in the community who can then speak back to us. Our activities involve um, innovative activities like body mapping or hazard mapping, where we go and ask them to make pictures of their workplaces and tell us what it's like to work there. And then we interact with some of what we know about workplace health and those kind of interactive sessions are the bedrock of, of what we've found. And that's how we are able to raise the workers' voices and hear from them what their struggles are. And so, you, I mean, businesses must be in on this, too. They must accept you into... How we connect mostly is through community-based organizations that are already serving low-wage workers for another reason. So employers directly haven't been central. It's been more like if there's a community um, um, literacy folks or job placement folks, perhaps um, refugees settling agencies, um, community centers, churches. Those are places where people with low wages may be congregating already, and we go into the city and find where they're already meeting and then engage them in, in those places. Um, so what have you found so far in, um, in this third, third phase now that you've completed? In the, in the third phase, we just really tried to characterize the work conditions. So we're learning about what kind of exposures or problems that arise in the workplace that threaten health uh, happen. So for a hairstylist, for example, she may be exposed to a number of chemicals that um, are in her workplace. Or perhaps people are working long hours in which they have to stand for long periods of time. Um, we, we see people working in healthcare having a struggle trying to engage in safe patient handling. They are having difficulty lifting people. Um, or even just the, the sheer amount of work, the demand of the workload on people versus what they really are able to accomplish. Um, so the body wears out if it's overtaxed, right? So a lot of times that's what we're seeing. Um, and many people try to work two jobs, and then that ends up leading to a certain kind of exhaustion that's really hard to exactly make um, measurements of, but you can kind of see the way people are being sort of used up and worn out over time. Well, some of these jobs, by 
definition. I mean, they're they're labor, mm -hmm. right? They're strenuous and they're, I mean... Some are, and some are really boring and, and struggle with an emotional component. Say you are a, um, in a call center where you're going to accept angry phone calls, you know, phone calls from angry people all day long. It's not exactly physically demanding, but you may be in sort of a, a dank office where the air quality isn't so good, and now you're constantly dealing with the stress of the people on the phone combined with the stress of your supervisor combined with your coworker stress. And so sometimes work-related stress and the emotional toll that the jobs take is more of a feature than, say, the actual physical labor. I mean, that's kind of what a lot of service sector jobs bring, and then healthcare also is a similar thing, although there is some physicalness to um, a lot of the um, you know, certified nursing assistants and home health aides have a physical component too. Sure. Um, also, people are exposed to cleaning agents more than you might think. Uh, so cleaners are using chem uh, pretty strong chemicals in hospitals and large um, facilities. So we might think we lead a chemical-free uh, life ar around us, but we're not quite noticing. And that's really a feature of the low-wage work. We're not always noticing what low-wage workers are going through. They're marginalized. They're often invisible, kind of looked right through. And we're not um, taking into consideration that their jobs may have dangers. And there's a low commitment to training often on the part of the employers. So has anything surprised you um, about work conditions when, when you started looking into this? Were there any surprises for you? I think one of the most disappointing surprises is the... Um, strong presence still of racism and discrimination on the job. Um, it, it's still such an, a constant factor for, for many workers, um, many, many stories of unfair labor practices that are hard to actually make a case of, right? They're borderline or and they, people feel the, the stigma or the sense of being discriminated against pretty strongly. So that was a surprise to me. I think I was not surprised to find that some jobs are dangerous and people aren't quite aware of what they're going to be exposed to. They're not, they're not um, trained up front. It's not as up front, you know, what the kind of conditions they're going to be in. And so that not knowing part is what is difficult for workers to cope with. If they're just not aware, they're not made aware of what potential dangers they may find on the job, they're not able to prevent uh, injury or illness from occurring. Okay, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Jeanette Zeckler. She's Director of Research and Special Projects for the Occupational Health Clinical Centers at Upstate. Um, have you come up with solutions, or do you have um, any recommendations, we, either in, immediate yeah, or long-term? we're working on recommendations all the time, and very often they arise from specific workers' problems that are brought forward. And I think that, you know, we... We're, you, Making low wages in and of itself is a health hazard. Um, many of the studies are showing, and you can see it clearly. Um, as we talk about concentrated poverty in Syracuse, for example, the state of low wages is particularly frustrating. But on top of that, um, I think the, one of the quickest and easiest ways that we can address these problems are to concentrate on the fact that workers have a right to be trained uh, on the job and to know ahead of time, you know, the exposures they're going to face and how to protect themselves. And that um, is very frequently glossed over. And so though we can put more attention on that. And also, um, you know, enforcing existing regulations would be um, something we'd like to see um, more strongly and consistently applied. I think we have um, OSHA is underfunded. 
So with an agency that can't possibly be in all these workplaces, in our city, for example, they can't do the kinds of inspections that sometimes people imagine are going on. The people often say to me, well, don't we have OSHA? Don't we have like regulations in place? And we may have many on the books, but very often um, things are going under the radar and people aren't, you know, those workplaces aren't being um, examined for health. So we have to think about ways to bring that um, to light and to um, raise awareness about the health of people at work. So would, would raising the wage for the same work, would that do anything to help improve health? I would think um, most of us who work in this field believe that raising wages is a just and reasonable um, thing to do because it's just a matter of dignity. People are working for... Um, you know, wages that can't support their health, can't support their their lives, and very basic ways. We're not talking about vacations or extras. We're talking about, you know, food on the table, clothing, educational opportunity, uh, transportation is a big important problem. Also, childcare. So, if we can start shoring up some of those things with decent wages, and I would also add um, jobs that have some kind of interesting. Nature. So people often report they'd like to be learning more on the job. They'd like to be having a job with a little bit more complexity and that they feel they could rise to that, but then the opportunity isn't there. So if we could begin to create quality jobs, then uh, that would really go a long way, I think, toward the physical and mental health of, of workers. And most of these jobs don't include health insurance coverage either. So that's, that's another... correct. I mean, that's, you know, they will keep people, very often people are kept at a 35-hour or 30-hour um, status so that they have part-time status so they never achieve the ability to get benefits. And if they do have the ability to get benefits, they're often too expensive for them to um, undertake. So that is another um, serious problem, of course. All right. When you talk about workers needing to know their rights, um, what rights are you talking about? What can they do? Um, mm-hmm. Because I mean, if they fear losing their job by complaining... Right. So there's two components to knowing your rights. One component is knowing what they are. And what they are, in a nutshell, is that they have the right to a healthy and safe workplace under the OSHA Act 1970. And so it is the employer's responsibility to provide that. And so they have a basic right to that. They have a right to know what materials they're using and to know um, more about the health and safety of those Um, materials and chemicals or whatever it it is that occurs on the job. They also have the right to refuse dangerous work. So if they arrive at work and something is dangerous, such as there's a violent customer at their cash registers or there is an imminent um, odor emanating from somewhere, they have a right to go to to their supervisor and say that this is a dangerous situation. I'm willing to stay and work, but I find that this is going to impact my health. And people often need to know how to navigate some of those rights. So the two components are knowing what those rights might be, also how would I use them? In what way would I be approaching? How would be, what is the most effective strategy for approaching your employer when you have a concern about your health at work? Good point. So those two things are components of what we try to help people know. What would you do next and what's really reasonable, given that you may fear, fear retaliation? Sure. Sure. Well, what are the next steps of this project? What's the next phase? Well, this project has actually moved on and um, 
we began to expand in other counties. So we received some funding from the New York State Department of Labor to expand into the southern tier and to the north country. And those expansions, and also in the capital district, those expansions are helping us learn more, helping us reach more um, workers, and helping us understand some of the subsets of workers that we might, might want to take a focus on. Um, so as we run into problems, we can look at specific occupations and delve more deeply into what what those occupations' problems might be, such as home health age, which is the fastest growing low-wage occupation, or hairstylists who are under um, new, constantly having new chemicals that they're exposed to and they're not really aware of the potential health impacts that are faced that they face. Um, also, retail uh, folks are you know struggling with how much they have to stand in one place and are socially isolated. So as we can attack those particular problems. We can uh, help workers with solutions, often, again, revolving around training, getting better training, getting better communication uh, skills in sort of how to approach management when there's problems on on the job. Wow. Well, thank you for being here. My guest has been Occupational Health Clinical Center's Director of Research and Special Projects, Jeanette Zeckler. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Robert Daly, a retired psychiatrist and professor emeritus from Upstate and the St. Lawrence River, has written two stunning poems about loss and what can carry us through. The first is titled, After Ache. One. Her death, for him, a tsunami in Aceh. He knew the wave was coming. No one could stop it. He sought the company of one who'd seen it all before. He did not drown as the wave arrived. When the wave receded, exhausted by its inland journey, his illusions ceased. He was the prisoner of what was lost. Two. Retreating waters carried him to uncharted seas until he found a land where he could belong. In that place, he met new life. Great-grandsons had arrived. Three. Amidst the rubble, he held them. He was in ecstasy, a state his loss could not reach and alter. Their touch, their heft, their warmth, their life asleep on him, their willing reception of his embrace set him free. Second poem, Listen. Friends in happy unions tell me of their pleasures, travels, dining, the theater, TV shows, quiet evenings, the sensual comforts of intimacy, household chores, who they are in the great world. Now a single man, I listen. Soon after, you, slowly going blind, and other ailments too, still working and cheerful, aided by your wife. I say, I want to show you this on YouTube. Let's go to the ball game. That picture, isn't it beautiful? What you cannot see, you listen. 
This has been Upstate's Health Link on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. On next week's show, HealthLink on Air explores breast cancer surgery options. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.